right, thank you so much, church family. Thank you for giving so generously and, and faithfully. And uh, we're blessed to uh, be able to start this sermon series today. I've really been looking forward to it, look, uh, praying and working on it, researching for many weeks, and hit the wrong button and lost all of my research this week. And pushed, uh, I thought I was copying and saving it three weeks, really more than that. Uh, lots of notes, footnotes, research, lots of reading. And in one moment, uh, I lost it all. And so what I did is I just rewrote it and I think it turned out better. So I hope it, I hope it did. And so uh, I hope it did. Amen. I guess y'all can be the judge of that here in just a, just a minute. So today we, we do begin a series of sermons called Preaching the Paintings. And what we're going to do over the next six weeks we're going to look at some famous works of art that were inspired by biblical text. And so, you, you know me, I, I'm a preacher. I'm not an art museum curator. I'm not an art expert or an art historian. I am a preacher of the gospel. But I love so much these amazing works of art that God inspired the da Vinci's of the world and the Van Gogh's. And what we'll do is we will look at six of these and look at the text upon which they were built and we're going to look at the artist, a little bit of history, biography of the artist, and then especially uh, the painting. And after each sermon, after the invitation, uh, we're going to give a giveaway of this rendition of the painting that I'm preaching on. And so uh, what we've done is we've ordered these prints, and uh, you don't know how we're going to do this, but it's really a cool way. At the end of the service, one uh, fortunate soul is going to be able to take home for them a very large print of Raphael's transfiguration. And we're gonna do that each week until December 23rd, and it's not gonna be a print, it's gonna be an actual painting. And we're gonna give you, somebody's gonna win the Adoration of the Magi by Leonardo da Vinci. No, not the original one. That's, uh, <laughs> that would be multi, multi-millions of dollars. But the one we got's about $300, and we think you're gonna really, the, the person who wins is gonna be absolutely uh, blown away by how beautiful this is. So we've ordered those, and today after the sermon and after the invitation, we, we will do uh, the drawing. Over the last, uh, really the last few months, for some reason I have just become infatuated with art. I, I was privileged to go many years ago to the Louvre, and I've seen with my own eyes some of the most famous works like Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa, but it really was just the last few weeks when I got to go to New York City, the Modern Museum, uh, of art there, and then got to go to Washington, D.C. and the National Gallery of Art and seen these Monets, these Picassos, these Van Goghs. And yes, even there's one in North America. There's one Leonardo da Vinci painting in North America, and I happened to stumble upon it while we were in Washington a few weeks ago. And so all of this I see, and I'm reading, currently reading biographies of some of these painters. And so I'm pulling together all of this information and I want to share it with you. And I want to do it in a way that I hope is motivational and encouraging, but also educational. So that when you walk away from here, you would worship God, not only with your, with your heart and with your soul, but also with your mind. And so this very first one, it's based on Matthew's gospel, chapter 17, verses 1 through 21. It's Raphael's painting called Transfiguration. Now, you and I are familiar, if you've, if you've read the Gospels, you're, you're familiar with this mighty scene, this momentous climactic moment in the life of Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. Matthew 17, Mark chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, all three synoptic writers record this momentous movement event in the life of Jesus Christ where He was literally 
transfigured, metamorphosis. In fact, that that word is used in in the Greek text, metamorphe, and that's where we get our English metamorphosis, where what is on the inside of Jesus radiates and bursts out on the outside, and there's this effervescent, this this illuminating of Jesus Christ on that mountain uh, with his disciples. So what we're going to do today is we're going to read the text, and as I read it, I want you to really engage with the text and understand, you know, what is going on in the life of Christ And then we're going to look at Raphael and look at his life a little bit. And then we're going to actually look at the painting. And I've even got my little, uh, this this thing, look at that. That thing is powerful, isn't it? And so we're going to kind of walk you through the painting. And then I've got just three or four just practical things that I want us to apply to, to our lives, okay? So let's do this. Let's read the Word of God together. Now, after six days, Jesus, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, And he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus Christ was transfigured. Literally, metamorphothe. Metamorphothe. Transfigured. And that's where we get our English word metamorphosis. Jesus Christ was transfigured before the disciples, Peter, James, and John. Only those three. The other nine, you will notice them in Raphael's painting. He puts them down underneath, below. Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. So we'll hold right there for just a moment, verses 1 through 3, and just share with you a little bit of what is going on in the text. And this is how we're going to study the text today. We're going to walk through the text together, and then we'll look at Raphael, and we'll look at transfiguration. So, Jesus Christ is on a mountain. Which mountain is that? Well, there's debate among scholars what mountain this is. Many believe it's Mount Hermon to the north, Caesarea Philippi. Just a few months ago, a group of us from Great Hills, we went to Caesarea Philippi. We went north. That's the furthest north that Jesus physically, geographically went when he was on planet Earth. And so, we believe it could very well be Mount Hermon up there in the northern part of Israel that he was transfigured. Others say, no, it was about 11, 12 miles west of the Sea of Galilee, Mount Tabor. I don't know which mountain it was. I just know it happened. It was either north up there on Mount Hermon or it was west on Mount Tabor. But the main thing that happened is Jesus Christ, he experienced this metamorphosis. And I like the way the Merriam-Webster dictionary defines for us a metamorphosis. And the Merriam-Webster dictionary uses a very fascinating word. I thought it was a fascinating word for a secular document. And I quote, a metamorphosis is a change of physical form, structure, or substance, especially by a supernatural cause. And I thought it was interesting that they used the word, literally used the word supernatural. And and really that is the truth because the origin, the derivation of the word metamorphosis comes from this Greek text. It's this Greek word where Jesus Christ is literally, he's changed. I mean, what is on the inside? This radiant deity glory of God, Shekinah glory of God on the inside. It just bursts forth and radiates on the outside. And there Jesus Christ is standing before Peter, James, and John, and he has a couple of guests, a couple of men. In the Old Testament, we know exactly who these men are. This would be Elijah and Moses. Then Peter, he said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Now, had he just stopped right there, you know, if if he just stopped right there. But Peter, he often puts his foot in his mouth 
He has that proverbial problem, and a lot of us have that problem. We, we speak, our mind gets a little ahead of our tongue. And, and he just says, Lord, it's good that we be here. And then he makes this statement. If you wish, we can make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was speaking, God interrupted him. I love this. He was talking, and this voice, while he was, <laughs> he's still speaking, and God interrupts them. And a bright cloud overshadowed them. And you'll see this in a moment. Raphael does an amazing job of depicting the Shekinah glory of God, God the Father speaking into God the Son. This cloud overshadowed them. A voice came from out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, hear him. And when the disciples heard it, that would be Peter, James, and John, they fell down on their faces and they were greatly afraid. But Jesus, he came and he touched them and said, arise. What's it say? Anybody need to hear that today? Do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This statement that God the Father makes to God the Son, he makes this one other time in his life, and it's at another climactic, momentous event in the life of Jesus. Anybody? Exactly, Patrick, this is baptism. And Jesus did not say this, he said, you. And so that baptism moment more for Christ when the Father said, you are my beloved Son, but this time it was more like for the disciples. This, I want you all to make sure you get this, guys. This God-man, this Jesus of Nazareth, this is my beloved son. I am well pleased with him, and everybody needs to listen to him. It's interesting when you study that phrase that you see the law, the prophets, and the writings all culminate into that one simple declarative statement of God the Father to God the Son. For example... In Psalm 2, 7, in the writings, you see this word, this is my beloved son. In Isaiah 42, 1, the prophets, you see these words, in whom I am well pleased. And then in the law, in the Torah, in Deuteronomy 18, 15, it literally says, there's coming a prophet who will arise like you, Moses, and the people should listen to him. So this is not lost on the disciples. This is not lost on early Christendom. Because these men that were called by Jesus Christ are all Jews. And they get the law and the writings and the prophets. And they get this Moses who represents the law is on one hand of Christ. And, we, and, and, and Raphael will show him to us in a moment with his tablets, the Ten Commandments. And on the other side is the great prophet Elijah. And so here he is, Jesus Christ. God the Father speaking these words of affirmation and blessing upon him. And he is the pinnacle, the summation of all the Old Testament, the law, the writings, the prophets. There he is. And he is suspended between, and I love the way Raphael depicts him. He's suspended between heaven and earth and all eyes are upon him as they should be. Because he's the God man. He's Jesus the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the one that will die and rise from the dead. He is the central figure. Mm of the text, of the painting, 
of history for all eternity, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's what the writers want us to see. They want us to focus in on this. They want us to worship him. I love verse 7. Jesus has just experienced this amazing moment. And what does he do? He, he comes like immediately to the disciples and he says, do, do not be afraid. You know, the Bible says this 365 times, maybe once for every day. But in this context, I thought it was very fascinating that Jesus, after he just received this amazing affirmation and word of blessing, he goes right into ministry mode and he tells the disciples, he goes, hey guys, it's okay, do, do not be afraid, arise. Now as they came down from the mountain, verse 9, Jesus commanded them and he said, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? I think Elijah's appearance made them ask this question. Because it is an interesting question. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered their question. He said, indeed, Elijah. Now watch this. This is very interesting. Jesus said, Elijah is coming. So there's a future Elijah type of person who is coming, all right? First, and he will restore all things. That is an eschatological end times kind of prophetic word about an Elijah kind of figure who is coming. But I say to you, now watch what he does next. Elijah's already come. So Jesus is telling him, there's Elijah that to come is coming, but there's an Elijah who's already come, and we're more familiar with this one, right? We know him as John the Baptist. And they did not know him, Jesus said, but they did to him. They killed him. Herod decapitated his head. I mean, he took off his head and, and put it on a platter. They did to him, this Elijah, whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer uh, at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. But when you read Revelation chapter 11, you see this Elijah kind of figure this prophet, this one of two prophets, I think he prophesies for like three days there in Jerusalem, then he's killed and God takes him up. I think that's part of the Elijah who is to come. Now, the easy answer is the Elijah who's already come, and that would be John the Baptist, right? In the spirit, in the vein, in the prophetic ministry of Elijah of old. Now, when they had come to the mountain or to the multitude, notice they're out of the mountain. They're into the multitude. And Raphael, he depicts this in a striking, symmetrical, beautiful, diametrical way. He has this beautiful, I mean, even the triangular, I mean, this, this beautiful depiction of Jesus on the mountain. And then in a moment, I'll show it to you. And underneath, there's chaos. There's confusion. There's demonic possession. And it's just this contrast of where, of where man is and where the devil is. There's pain and confusion and heartache. But where Jesus is and where he is, there's peace and there's radiance and there's light and, there, and there's glory. But Jesus doesn't stay on the mountain. Aren't you glad he doesn't stay on the mountain? But he comes down to earth where we are, where we hurt, where we deal with demons. And where we deal with pain and cancer and sickness and Alzheimer's. And where we have all this temptation and difficulty. And Jesus Christ comes off of the mountain down into the valley where you and I live. And you'll see it here in just a moment. 
Some of you are going, you ever going to show us the painting? Yes, I am. Just hold on just a minute. Because the painting's not the most important thing. The text is. If there was no biblical text, Raphael would have nothing to paint. Okay? So we got to focus on the text. When they come down from the mountain to the multitude, a man came to Jesus, kneeling to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Now, we know epileptic seizures, and we know that those are painful and difficult. But this is beyond just mere epilepsy, guys. This epilepsy drove this person to, a, to try to drown him, drove this young boy to a place to try to burn him, to try to hurt him. So there's more going on here than just mere epilepsy. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Now, notice what Jesus does. He answered and he said to the multitude, right? Oh, faithless and perverse generation. <laughs> Woo, the Lord, he don't mince words. You know, he's he not joking around. He just calls them out. He's hanging out with Elijah, right? The prophet. He's got to give a prophetic word. You perverse people. You faithless people. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And when Jesus rebuked the demon, it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Now the disciples came to Jesus privately and they said, why couldn't we do that? Dude, that was amazing. How did you do that? Why, why couldn't we do that? Remember the nine down in the valley, they were trying to cast this demon out, but they couldn't. And Jesus up on the mountain, he's going to come down and take care of business. And they're like, why? Oh, hold on, time out, Jesus. How did you do that? And how, why can't we do that? And Jesus said to them, because you don't believe. It's because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind, this kind of demonic oppression, this kind of difficulty does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So what a text. The reason I read the text in its entirety it's because when we come to the painting, that's what Raphael read. He read it in 1516, and he began to draw it. So who was Raffaello Sanzio da Urbino? That was his name. He went by the name Raphael, R-A-P-H-A-E-L, which is the Hebrew word Jehovah Rapha, the God who what? Anybody? Heals. The last painting of his life, it took him four years. It's by far his most famous painting of all of his paintings. I think he wanted, he wanted to give his best. He took these four years. I don't think he knew he was going to die. He's only 37 years of age when he died. But isn't it interesting that his last and most sublime painting was the one that depicted his very name, Jehovah Heals. Jesus Christ comes to earth. He heals this boy of this demonic possession. He was born April 6, 1483, died April 6. How many people are born and then die on their birthday 37 years later, 1520? He, along with Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, they lived at the same time. It's crazy. All in the same location. In Italy, in Florence, or just a little north of Florence, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and Raphael of this high Renaissance, Baroque, brilliant time in 
in history, they all live at the same time. And no, no, they didn't all get along so much. Michelangelo has this fiery, you know, temper and reputation. And Raphael is this more meek, it's just kind of quiet, introverted person. He was an orphan when he was 11 years of age. His mom died. A few years later, his dad died. He's 11. But his family noticed that he has this amazing, prodigious gift, a gift to draw. And so they put him under understudies, and that's very common, especially in this time frame. You would go in a studio. You would go to a more seasoned uh, veteran painter, and you would be his understudy. And you would get your tutelage and your learning from him, and that's exactly what Raphael did. But he began to flourish, and he painted these amazing works of art. Let, let me show you one. And I put this one up here, this Madonna, because you, you recognize this. If for no other reason, you recognize those guys, right? I'm over here. Y'all remember the little an angels there and the Madonna and the baby Jesus? That is one of Raphael's uh, famous, famous paintings. How did he die? There's a lot of controversy over how he died. Some say it was a pulmonary illness. Some say he died of pneumonia. Others said he died because he literally worked himself to death. He started this painting in 1516. And the way it started was in 1516 was a Cardinal Giulio de Medici. He was the archbishop of the cathedral in Narbonne, France. So Medici, who would later become the Pope, I mean, he would become the Pope of the Catholic Church. He was a high-ranking archbishop, and he, li and he lived and ministered in France. And so he wanted to dedicate a painting to the patron saints of this cathedral. And these are two men by the name of, and we'll, we'll look at them in just a moment. They're actually depicted in, in the painting. And, uh, and you'll see them in just a moment. And we are going to get to the painting, I, I promise you. Just, just hang on. And so he... He, he looked for one of the best painters in all the world, and he happened to be in Italy, and he asked Raphael to paint the Transfiguration. And so Raphael in 1516, he got this uh, assignment, and they would pay him for it, and he began to paint, and he began to paint, and he worked, and he worked for four years. In fact, he wasn't finished when he died in 1520. And so by that time, Raphael, even though he was 37, he had many people studying underneath him. He's a genius. He's this prodigious, gifted mind. And, and so people are studying under him. And so some finished it out. Napoleon Bonaparte, who you know in France, Raphael was his favorite artist. And when Napoleon began to conquer the world, when he went to Italy, he stole this painting. He said, Raphael is my favorite artist. The Transfiguration is my favorite painting. He says, we're taking that to Paris. And they did. They stole it. Well, I guess if you conquer, you get what you want, right? And, and he took the painting and he put it in the Louvre and it stayed there for many years until Napoleon died in 1815. Italy came back, said, we want our painting back. And it went back. And today it resides in Vatican City in Rome. So as we analyze this, this painting, make sure, make sure I'm good with my notes that I wrote twice for you, by the way. Because I destroyed the first. Anyhow, that's the story I told you. So here it is. Let, let's look at it for just a moment. Here's this famous painting called Transfiguration. And we can go from this side to this side. That is, that is not the Transfiguration. That would be 
Jesus, and there we go. So this is it. Let me give you just a, just a moment, just kind of get your eyes focused on it. Um, and I, I guess I could just stay right here and just kind of work with you here with it. Uh, oh, I can't wait till next week. This, this is what's coming next week. This, this band goes, the Good Samaritan. That's Rembrandt's, the prodigal son. Ooh, that's amazing. And this is the transfiguration. Who is the prominent figure featured in this painting, y'all? The white behind him, the cloud in Raphael's mind, he is, he is drawing what he believes is God the Father's voice speaking when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. To his left and to our right would be Moses holding the Ten Commandments here. And this would be Elijah, okay? And those are the two prophets, with the prophet Elijah and then Moses the lawgiver. And then here you would, you would recognize the disciples. This would be Peter, James, James, okay, James, Peter, and John, all right? Faith, hope, and love represented in the very colors of their, um, of their, of their clothing. How about these little guys? Does anybody notice these two? Well, this guy, you can see his facial uh, figure, but there's another person right beside him. And I want to tell you who these guys are because I was really fascinated with these people. This is Justice and Pastor. Justice and Pastor. Diocletian martyred them when they were 13 and 9 years of age in AD 306. They're the patron saints of this massive cathedral in Narbonne, France, where Medici, remember, he's the archbishop, and he wants this amazing painting, and Raphael knows the history, and so he tucks these two guys. Now, they're not in the biblical text, right, because they die in 306. The biblical text of Matthew's written around AD 70, but Raphael's taking a little bit of poetic license here, and he's got this especially right, doesn't he? And notice this beautiful, I mean, just this Baroque painting the landscape, the trees, all of this symmetry, if you looked at it, it's almost like a, a perfect um, triangle with Jesus at the apex. I mean, famous, famous work of art. This is the top part, okay? Now watch the bottom part. This is such a contrast to everything we see up here. We see glory, we see Moses, the law, we see the prophet, Elijah. We see these martyred young boys in heaven now with God and, and the Peter, James, and John. They're just blown away by what they see in Jesus. And then Raphael says, but watch this. Chaos, dark. Notice, notice the cave, the darkness. What, what jumps out at y'all when you look here below? All right, well, let's look at the disciples. There's nine of them, by the way. If you were to count, these are the nine disciples, and this are the, these are the three. So you've got nine plus three is what? Okay, good. We're, we're all together now. Twelve. I hope you'll go home and, and pull this up on your computers because Philip looks a lot like a, a young lady, and he has some more feminine characteristics about him. You can see him here. This is Matthew. Matthew with his book that he's writing, the Gospel of Matthew. And he is the only one looking at this serpentine pose lady. I cannot for the life of me figure out who she is. I mean, she is this Leonardo da Vinci creation that he, that he borrowed, and he just seemed to stick her here in the middle of the disciples and the townspeople. 
Now, if y'all research and find out exactly who she is, and I have done some research on it, but there, there she is. Maybe she, I don't know, maybe Raphael thinks she's an angel. I, I don't know, but only one person is looking at her and it's Matthew, or is he really, really looking at him? This is the demon-possessed boy. He's got some serious tricep action going on right here. I wish, I mean, it's just like, he's like buff. I don't know if y'all can see this or not, but it's really impressive. And this is his dad. And these are the townspeople. There are four, you can't see it in this rendition, but there are four hands raised. And I asked myself as I studied this in-depthly, why are they raising their hands? I think, I think they're raising their hands because they're desperate. Because they want help and they want hope. And they, this, they, this boy is about to kill himself with these demons. They're throwing him in the water. They're throwing him in the fire. But notice when Jesus heals him. And Raphael... He draws it as if it's the very moment where Jesus says, come out of him, demon, because the boy's mouth is open and his hand is raised as if to say, I've been delivered. And that's what Raphael depicts here is the deliverance of the demons by Jesus the Christ. Y'all can't see it, but there's a little guy right here. And I looked at that over and over and I was like, who is that guy? And he's, just a, he's just a townspeople and nobody but Raphael put him in there for a reason. In all of these pictures, all these faces, this, this is the creation of the prodigious gifted mind of Raphael as he, puts a, as he puts a face with each one of these disciples, with Jesus, Moses, Elijah, Justice, Pastor, Peter, James, and John, demon-possessed boy, enigmatic woman, whoever she is, angel she is, I don't know. Uh, here is interesting, you've got You've got Simon and Thaddeus. You've got anybody? He's all alone. He's kind of on the outside. He's kind of an ominous figure. Anybody? That's Judas. That's exactly right. That's Judas Iscariot. Four years. Four years it took him to write this or paint this. So I'm going to give four points, and I'll close my message. The first thing I want you to take away from the text and and the painting is this, is Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was in A.D. 33. He has been for all eternity. And listen to this. He was in 1516. At least the archbishop believed he was, and Raphael believed that he was. Now, Raphael did not live a very moral life, much like these artists that I've, that I've read and studied. They, they were troubled. Many of them were geniuses, but they were very, very troubled souls. And he never married. He had many uh, ladies in his life, if you will, many mistresses, many relationships, illicit relationships. But when he was 37, for 15 days, he laid on his deathbed, and Raphael was like, you know what? I better get right with God because I'm about to die. And that's what he did. I'm sorry that he waited until the end of his life. But for 15 days, as he's in agony and as he's dying, he calls for the priest. He calls for the church. He calls for people to pray for him. He confesses his sins to God. And then when he dies, it's like all of Italy comes. I mean, it's just masses, masses of people come to see him for one, for one last time. But Jesus Christ He is the central figure of the text. And that's not Jesus, that's white-haired Pastor Danny. But up here, we'll put him back up here in just a minute. There he is. 
That is, uh, he's, he, he's the central figure of all time and all eternity, and it's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's, that's what I want you to, to grasp with, with your heart and with your mind today. The second one is this. All beauty is God's beauty, and all truth is God's truth. God gives this creative, artistic ability, and he gives it in grand measure. And, and he just happened in the sovereign mind of God he just happened to give at one time in this high Renaissance time frame in one location in Italy. I mean, and they all live at the same time. Sometimes they don't get, very, they get along very well with each other, Da Vinci, Michelangelo, and Raphael. But in the mind of God, he puts those three people in that one tiny country and he gives them all these gifts and these abilities and we are the beneficiaries. I mean, we, we, we look and we're going to look at Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. Oh, my land. What an amazing, beautiful picture. Michelangelo, uh, David, and Moses. And Michelangelo's the, the creation of Adam in the Sistine Chapel. And I mean, God, in, God, he blows me away. He does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And he cannot be questioned because he's God. I can't figure him out. I don't understand his ways. His ways are mysterious to me. Why would God do that in one time, in one renaissance, and give these guys all of these, all these gifts? Because he's God. He just, he just does things, and he's mysterious. But all of his truth is his truth. All of his beauty is his beauty. He calls the shots. We don't. He's the king. We are the vassals. We are the servants of the king. Third thing I want you to get is this. Life is ugly messy, life is chaotic, and life is filled with pain. If we can put the picture back up one more time. This is what Raphael's trying to show us. Where Jesus is, there's light and life and happiness and joy and reverence and worship. But when Jesus is not on the scene, this, this is what we get. We get confusion and we get uh, we, we get this darkness and we're like, well, we, we need help here. God, help us. And, and Jesus does help us. And, and as I've been studying Jehovah Shema this past week on, on my podcast, and I, I think about when God is present, there's prosperity, there's joy, there's life, there's peace, there's forgiveness. And when God's not present, you don't have any of that. So if I were to ask you, in your life, which which part of the painting best depicts your life? Is God present and active and worshiped and alive and speaking and forgiving and giving joy? Or, or are you here and you say, well, I'm, I'm just doing the best I can and I'm just dealing with life. I'm, I'm dealing with darkness. I'm dealing with the hurt and the pain and the confusion. And, and the good news is, the good news is, even though life is messy and chaotic, and sinful, and painful, and difficult, when the Son of God comes down, He changes everything. He makes it right. He gives forgiveness. He gives joy. Demons, get the heck out of here and go back to Hades. They, they can't stand in His presence. When God is there, things change dramatically. Is God in your life? Or are you occupied with demons? Are you occupied with darkness and unforgiveness and jealousy and bitterness and confusion? Well, in a moment, in a moment of time.
time. The Son of God could speak to your darkness. It would be dispelled and you would be filled with radiant light as you believe upon the Son of God. It can happen just like that. I mean, just like that. The last thing is this. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. In the reading of the text, I should have brought this out, but two distinct times Jesus Christ rebukes unbelief. Remember the first time he, he tells the, uh, the multitudes, he says, you're a bunch of perverse, knuckleheaded, unbelieving people. I mean, Jesus gave it to them. I mean, he, at times he, he should be very pointed and prophetic. And then Jesus, he, the disciples said, hey, hey. How did you do that? And, and why couldn't we do that? And Jesus said, because you don't believe. And the thing that upsets, I don't have many original words. I'm about to give you one. And it's convicting to me. Because I got one finger pointing at you and I got about 15 pointing at me. Okay? Let me add my toes and fingers. Okay. The thing that upsets God and brings breaks the heart of God the most is when we don't believe, when we don't trust, when we stay in the valley of doubt and confusion and pain and chaos, and when we don't believe God and trust God. And, and a lot of times that happens when, when God doesn't do what we think God should do when we think God should do it. And when God doesn't do what we think God should do, when the very moment we think he should do it, then we get offended, we get upset with God, and we don't believe. I think, I think, that breaks the heart of God more than anything. I think I break the heart of God. I break the heart of God when I don't believe, when I don't trust, and I got 750,000 reasons why I think we're in a big, big trouble as a church. And God says, don't you believe? Did I not call you here? Are these not my people? They ain't your people. They're my people. That's not your church. That's my church. You be faithful. You preach the word. You love the people. Let me, let me do what only I can do. And I'm being very honest with you. I'm being very real with you. This is my greatest sin is sometimes I don't believe God. You say, I don't know if I like a preacher that transparent, but that's what you got, brother. That's all you got is a, is a very flawed, sometimes sinful preacher. Sometimes I just don't. And I apologize for, to y'all, and I apologize to God for that because I am knuckleheaded, and sometimes... I just don't believe. Because listen, 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 listen. Oh, man, I didn't plan on saying all this. Because if I believed, I wouldn't worry. If you believed, so now you're going to meddling, brother. Keep talking about you. <laughs> Keep talking about you. Don't talk about me. It's a lot better if you, you confess your sins. I don't want you dabbling in my sin. No, if you believed, you wouldn't worry. Right? If it's good for this guy, it's good for you, right? So I, I, don't know, I don't know where you are. I don't know what this painting has done to you, more of what this text is doing to you. But as I grapple with it, the thing that jumped out at me more than anything was Jesus saying, trust 
in me. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We'll have our, we'll have our invitation. We'll just see God do great things at Great Hills, and then we're going to bless somebody with a sweet rendition of Raphael's Transfiguration. If you're here today and you're like your pastor and you need to take a step toward God and repentance and faith, then you do that. I invite you to do that. You don't have to do it publicly like I did, but I invite you to believe in God, trust in God. When you can't understand and track his hand, trust his heart. He's never failed us before, right? Why in the world would God start failing us now? Trust God with your marriage. Trust God with your finances. We can go on and on. Trust God with your kids. Trust God with your job. Is Jesus the Son of God? Is he the royal, reigning, resurrected king that we say he is? Yes? Then let's trust God. That may be your first step today. Some of you, very first step. I mean, a faith-filled step saying, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. Others of you today would take a bigger step. I mean, you would say, God, I, I, I'm, I'm giving you my life today. I, I'm, I'm becoming a follower of Jesus Christ today, and I want you to be my king. Oh, that would be awesome. We rejoice with you. I hope that your faith has been encouraged and built through the text, through the painting, through the genius mind that God could use a Raphael to speak to you today. Others of you would take a step of faith in tithing or take a step of faith in, in becoming a member, joining Great Hills, going to our Discover Great Hills class. I mean, I, here's what I'd love to see happen, guys. guys l- l- listen to this. I know your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, but listen to this. Everybody, everybody take a step forward, a forward into the light and, and a step out of the darkness and the lower the lower domain of the painting and take a step up into the light where God is. Forgiveness and joy and restoration and peace and prosperity and blessing and, and happiness and all the fruit of the Spirit. Come on. You say, how do I do that? How, 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 how do I get that? Where, where, where can I get that? Here it is. You have to believe. You have I have to believe. So God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Draw the people, God, to yourself. Draw the people, Lord, that need to be at Great Hills. Draw those people especially that they would say, wait a minute. That's, that's the kind of church that I want to be a part of. That's, that's, the, kind of, that's, the, that's the kind of faith-filled church place that I need to raise my family. And God, just draw them and draw other people to your great name for your fame and for your glory. And this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me if you would. We'll have our time of invitation and uh, we'll be here at the front, pray with you, encourage you. God bless you as you come.